0: In case you aren't a Beatles fan, because there must be at least one non-fan out there somewhere, Eleanor Rigby refers to a song by the English rock band The Beatles from their 1966 album Revolver. It was a departure from their usual pop rock standards, incorporating a double string quartet and lyrics that spoke of old age and loneliness instead of youth and love. Well, I hope you come away from this half hour with some new understanding of loneliness, how it's not just something that elderly people face, and with some ideas for reaching out of isolation during these COVID times. And at the very least, I hope you come away with a wonderful tune stuck in your head for a few hours. Before we start with a reading titled Five Myths About Loneliness, here are some of the lyrics from Eleanor Rigby, and I apologize in advance, For my singing voice, I just hope it gives you the idea of the tune. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Lives in a dream, waits at the window, wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Who is it for? All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? So let's go now to the Washington Post of January 8th, 2021. And this was written by Norina Hertz. Lots of people are lonely these days. Months of stay-at-home orders and other limits on face-to-face contact are taking their toll. But even before the pandemic introduced us to terms like social distancing, loneliness was a defining condition of the 21st century. More than a fifth of U.S. adults said in a 2018 Kaiser Family Foundation survey that they often or always felt lonely, lacking in companionship left out, or isolated. Britain even appointed a Minister for Loneliness three years ago to confront the problem. Why did we become so lonely? Who is most afflicted? And what harms does it cause? Misconceptions persist around each of these questions. Here are five of the most common. Myth number one, the elderly are the loneliest generation. Articles on loneliness often focus on the risk for older people. Baby boomers are aging alone more than any generation in U.S. history, and the resulting loneliness is a looming public health threat, observed the Wall Street Journal in 2018. And the pandemic has brought a fresh wave of commentary about how older people are particularly affected by shutdown orders. In April, ABC News referred to loneliness as the unspoken COVID-19 toll on the elderly. But while the elderly are lonelier than the average person, it's actually the young whom study after study reveals as the loneliness. A 2018 analysis by Britain's Office for National Statistics, for example, found that 10% of Britons aged 16 to 24 reported feeling lonely often or always, compared with 3% of those 65 and older. Among that younger cohort, a higher share than in any other group also felt lonely some of the time, 23%. Pools in the U.S. reveal a similar picture. In a 2019 YouGov survey, roughly one in five millennials reported having no friends at all. That was significantly higher than the proportion of Generation Xers or Baby Boomers who said they were friendless. Myth number two, loneliness is largely a mental health problem. A 2019 post on loneliness on the British website Mind mentions only its influence on mental well-being. Loneliness is associated with an increased risk of certain mental health problems, including depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, sleep problems, and increased stress. In 2015, a Psychology Today columnist similarly limited discussion of the effects of loneliness to mental disorders, linking it to depression, social anxiety, addiction, and hoarding. But loneliness has dire physical implications, too. If you are lonely or socially isolated, according to one review of 23 studies, you have a 29% higher risk of coronary heart disease and a 32% higher chance of stroke. A study of elderly people in group living facilities in Amsterdam found that those who felt lonely had a 64% greater risk of developing clinical dementia. Overall, if you are lonely or socially isolated, you are almost 30% more likely to die prematurely than if you have companionship. Statistically, loneliness is as damaging to our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. There's even evidence that loneliness of limited duration can lead to an early death. Potentially bad news for those of us living through the pandemic. Myth number three, open plan offices deepen relations with co-workers. Open plan offices foster team spirit and create a social space, explains the British firm Workspace Design and Build, supposedly leading to more collaboration and greater productivity. Meanwhile, in the Harvard Business Review, three University of Michigan researchers argue that even people who choose not to interact with others in open office co-working spaces prefer them because there is the potential for interactions when they desire or need them. Claims such as these are commonplace. But a study in the Academy of Management Review found that when people in open-plan offices did speak to one another, they tended to do so for shorter periods and more superficially, and they often censored themselves. What's more, a Harvard Business School study that tracked office workers at two companies that shifted from cubicles to open plans found that the new architecture, far from enhancing sociability, seemed to trigger a natural human response to socially withdraw from colleagues. People opted for email and messaging instead of talking, contributing to a feeling of isolation. This alienation is even worse if your office has bought into the idea of hot desking, having employees use whatever desk is available on a given day, with no place of one's own, nowhere to hang family photos, and with a different neighbor every day, Hot-desking workers feel an intense sense of isolation, one ethnographer of the practice observed. Myth number four, city dwellers are less lonely than rural residents. The challenge of dealing with loneliness is particularly acute in rural areas, explains A Political, a website for civil servants. Though tighter-knit communities can help reduce isolation, spread-out rural populations also make it easier for isolated people to lose human contact almost entirely. Making the case that rural areas are more alienating than cities, a New York magazine writer leaned on a striking correlation. States with the worst suicide rates are the least dense. Wyoming, Montana, New Mexico, and Alaska have the highest rates, according to the CDC. But loneliness strikes people wherever they live. The General Social Survey, a nationally representative survey of American adults, has several questions that probe issues related to loneliness, and it finds little, if any, difference among urban, suburban, and rural residents. For instance, asked, How often in the past four weeks they felt they'd lacked companionship, 45% of urban residents, 45% of suburbanites, and 49% of rural residents said never. 13% of city dwellers said they often or very often felt they lacked companionship. The comparable figure for suburban residents was 11%, and for rural denizens, 14%. The hectic pace and anonymity of city life, it appears, at least partly offset the advantage cities bring in terms of proximity to other people. Myth number five, loneliness is a Western phenomenon. A commentator in the Times of India decried in 2018, The Western World's Loneliness Epidemic. And in an interview about loneliness, former Surgeon General Vivek H. Murthy told Vox that culture bore much of the blame. In many Western societies, there's a lot more freedom to be who you are and a more open embrace of different identities. But the structures that ensure that people feel like they're part of a community are limited. There is evidence that the more individualistic a society is, the more lonely its citizens tend to be. And there is considerable correlation between individualism and the West. The U.S. and Britain both rank very high on that score. But loneliness is a public health crisis in the non-Western world, too. Nationally representative surveys find that roughly 28% of Chinese over 65 feel lonely, with some indications that the figure is rising, as is an increasingly individualistic mindset. In India, a national survey in 2017 of 15,000 older citizens, conducted by the Age Well Foundation, found that 48% were lonely. The figure was even higher in cities. In Japan, loneliness is also making headlines. There, the proportion of crimes committed by people over age 60 has quadrupled over the past two decades and observers believe that social isolation is a key driver of the trend. Some elderly commit minor offenses, such as petty shoplifting, specifically so they will end up in jail because they have no family or friends to support them. Now we go to the New York Times, another one of my favorites, Combating an Epidemic of Loneliness. This is written by Emily Soane. And published on December 18, 2020. Humans can survive three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food, and according to survival lore, three months without companionship. Whether true or not, what's clear is that people need people, and pandemics, many of us are learning, can be lonely times. After months of lockdowns and shelter-in-place orders, some experts worry about a rise in the number of people feeling alone, especially young people and older adults. But resilience is also widespread, and studying loneliness can reveal a variety of ways to combat it. In light of the pandemic, there are ways that we can increase that sense of connection or reduce feelings of loneliness in ways that we may be able to do safely at a distance said Julianne holt Lundstadt, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University. One of the things that research has shown is that social support is incredibly helpful in times of stress. Loneliness is a complicated emotion. You can feel lonely in a crowded room or feel content in solitude, and people vary widely in how much human connection they need, Dr. Lundstadt said. A useful way to think about loneliness, she said, is as the difference between how much social connection people want and how much they are getting. It's a subjective feeling, but researchers have begun to find signals in the brain that put the need for social interaction on par with the need to eat. In a study published in November, scientists deprived participants of contact with other people and then scanned their brains. After just 10 hours of isolation in a lab where they could read or draw but had no access to their phones or computers, people reported feeling lonely and craving social interaction. When they then looked at pictures of people engaged in social activities, scans showed midbrain activation identical to that of people who looked at pictures of food after 10 hours of fasting. It was surprisingly consistent across people, said Livia Tomova, a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Cambridge in Britain and co-author of the study. Social interaction is not just something that's kind of fun or comforting. It's something that we really need in order to function. Without that social connection, people often become depressed, which further feeds feelings of loneliness. Chronic loneliness is also linked to higher rates of heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, suicide, and even death. If loneliness is interfering with your ability to function, or if you're thinking about self-harm, seek professional help. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline offers free and confidential support at 1-800-273-8255, and many therapists are offering virtual appointments. For milder forms of loneliness, decades of research suggest a number of strategies to ease the toll of pandemic lockdowns. The most obvious is seeking support from friends. Across a number of studies, people with strong social relationships had a higher likelihood of living longer than people with weaker connections. Just knowing that people are there for them, Dr. Holt-Lunstad said, leads to a reduction in stress. In one small study, subjects could complete a stressful task, giving a speech that they were told was being recorded and judged, while maintaining lower heart rate and blood pressure by simply thinking about a good friend instead of a casual acquaintance. In a time of social distancing, this might mean calling, texting to check in, dropping off a gift, or driving by and waving. By providing support to others, it can provide a sense of meaning and purpose, Dr. Lundstadt said. It can strengthen social bonds and, in turn, lead to less loneliness. When seeking out connections, focus on your most unconditionally supportive friends and family. Some research shows that people feel more stressed and disconnected when their friendship networks include people who have betrayed them, weren't there for them during tough times, frequently argue with them, or otherwise cause negative feelings. A call with a close friend, in other words, will probably help more than a college reunion over Zoom. Simply increasing social contact is not sufficient, said Bert Uccino, a professor of psychology at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. You need to increase contact in the relationships that are important and very positive to you. I think those are relationships that will get people through. This might also be a good time to help out your neighbors using the neighborhood social app next door to randomly assign people to perform small acts of kindness, like delivering groceries, chatting over a fence, or participating in a neighborhood cleanup event, Dr. Hold Lundstadt and her colleagues found that loneliness rates dropped from 10% of people to 5% in people who did the kind acts. Research suggests you don't even need to know the people you're helping. Just donating money to a good cause might help, Dr. Uccino said. In a series of experiments, researchers found that people who gave money to others were happier than if they spent it on themselves. But if you're overwhelmed by giving, it can become detrimental. Instead, try hobbies like cooking, gardening, writing in a journal, or even listening to music. Creative arts can reduce loneliness, too. And while singing in person in a choir might not be possible right now, singing from balconies or through virtual groups can be powerful. Loneliness can strike at any age, but young people may bear the brunt of canceled activities and lost social time. An estimated 73% of Generation Z adults reported feeling lonely in a survey released by the American Psychological Association in October. Although group video calls and social media conversations have taken over many people's lives during the pandemic, we still don't know how virtual communication affects loneliness. A 2012 study found that phone or in-person conversations between mothers and daughters led to hormonal changes that reduced stress, while text messages did not. And heavy social media use has been linked with higher rates of loneliness. For young people who are already used to digital forms of communication like texting, it may turn out to be an adequate substitute for in-person interaction. And some types of social media use can help people feel more connected, added Dr. Tomova, who's working to figure out what most satisfies our hunger for social interaction and why. It's not clear yet, she said. We don't know a lot of things. For now... Many people are waiting out the tough reality of a unique situation, including Henry 96, a resident of Grand Oaks' assisted living community in Washington. Initially, he was doing well while waiting out the pandemic. Then over the summer, his closest friend died from non-COVID-19 causes. Now, Henry, who didn't want his last name published, feels isolated and alone. His closest closest relatives and friends live in England and in other parts of the U.S., and the pandemic has kept them from visiting him. Even if they could, they'd have to talk to him through a window overlooking the courtyard. For social interaction, he depends on phone calls and visits to the street, where he can interact with strangers walking by. I wish I could have closer contact with some people, he said, the isolation is inevitable, so you have to adjust to it. That's what I'm doing. And our last article today comes from the Washington Post of September 16, 2020, written by William Wan. It is titled, Pandemic Isolation Has Killed Thousands of Alzheimer's Patients While Families Watch from Afar. And I have had to leave some of this article out in order to fit it in. Mostly information about the relationship between uh, Dan Gurky and his wife Denise. If only Dan Gerkey could hold his wife's hand. Maybe she would talk again. Maybe she would look at him and smile as she used to. Maybe she would eat and stop wasting away. Since the pandemic began Gerkey's wife Denise 63 years old and afflicted with Alzheimer's disease had declined dramatically. Left alone in her nursing home, she had lost 16 pounds, could not form the simplest words, no longer responded to the voices of her children. In recent weeks, she'd stopped recognizing even the man she loved. Gerke, 61, could tell the isolation was killing his wife, and there was nothing he could do but watch. Every day it gets a little worse, he said. We've lost months, maybe years of her already. Beyond the staggering U.S. deaths caused directly by the novel coronavirus, more than 134,200 people have died from Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia since March. That is 13,200 more U.S. deaths caused by dementia than expected compared with previous years, according to an analysis of federal data by the Washington Post. Overlooked amid America's war against the coronavirus is this reality. People with dementia are dying not just from the virus, but from the very strategy of isolation that's supposed to protect them. In recent months, doctors have reported increased falls, pulmonary infections, depression, and sudden frailty in patients who had been stable for years. Social and mental stimulation are among the few tools that can slow the march of dementia. Yet even as U.S. leaders have rushed to reopen universities, bowling alleys, and malls, nursing homes say they continue begging in vain for sufficient testing, protective equipment, and help. It's like we as a country just don't care anymore about older people, said Gurky, as he drove to his wife's nursing home in Atlanta's northern suburbs. We've written them off. In recent weeks, Gherky has struggled with anger at U.S. leaders and at people who continue to reject simple measures such as wearing masks. As long as the virus keeps spreading, Gherky knows there's no way to safely visit his wife. His worst fear is that by the time he can hold her hand, it will be to say goodbye. With cases in Georgia still high, the closest thing Denise's nursing home has allowed is for Gherky to stand for a few minutes by the front door, while attendants wheel his wife to the lobby. So for months, he has been traveling to that doorway and calling out, trying to get a reaction to cut through the thickening fog of his wife's dementia. "'I still believe a spark of her is in there,' he said, as he arrived once more at her door on a recent Saturday. He phoned the nursing aides inside. A few minutes later, they pushed Denise into the lobby, her body now so frail it was disappearing into the wheelchair." Kirky took off his mask in case it would help her recognize him, and he called out, Hi, Denise. Inside the darkened lobby, he thought he saw his wife's lips move. America has counted tens of thousands of excess deaths since the pandemic began. These are deaths not recorded as due to the coronavirus and occur from causes such as hypertension or sepsis, but they are occurring at much higher levels than in the past. Many of the deaths are likely undiagnosed cases of coronavirus, experts say, while others are likely due to indirect effects from the pandemic, hospitals being overrun or care being delayed. Among the sources of excess deaths, dementia has produced by far the most, more than the next two categories, diabetes and heart disease combined. In interviews with The Post, people with dementia, who are still able to communicate, said they felt trapped and doomed. Activities that used to stimulate their minds, music therapy, game nights, jazzercise, have ground to a halt. At most facilities, residents aren't even able to eat lunch together anymore. One woman in D.C. who has not seen her children, grandchildren, or siblings since March described the horror of witnessing her mind deteriorate in isolation. I'm not talking with the whole sentence anymore, she wrote in a series of text messages about her decline. Not got balance, painful cramping. It's not just the loss of interaction, said Jason Karlowish, an Alzheimer's expert at the University of Pennsylvania. Families fill in a lot of gaps at nursing homes. They do much of the feeding and bathing, They advocate and communicate, he said. If you think of Alzheimer's as a disability, family members are almost like a cognitive wheelchair for patients who have lost part of their mind. They're essential. Countries like the Netherlands have safely reopened their nursing homes without any increase in coronavirus cases by providing ample protective equipment, testing, and rigorous protocols. But in the U.S., little of the trillions in emergency funding has gone to nursing homes. For months, the Trump administration has talked of getting more testing into nursing homes, but the effort continues to be plagued with problems. This month, Florida and Arizona said they want to reopen nursing homes, but have yet to explain how they will do so safely, given shortages in equipment staffing and testing. The situation is especially difficult in Gurky State, Georgia, which rushed this spring to reopen tattoo parlors, hair salons, movie theaters, and restaurants. Even as the state had the country's highest rate of new cases, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp pursued a weeks-long lawsuit to stop Atlanta from requiring masks and only dropped the case last month. As long as they remain in place, these lockdowns, there's, during these lockdowns, there's only one way Gurky will be able to hold his wife. The rules include one exception for families to enter nursing homes, deathbed visits. Gurky recalled the last time he'd heard Denise laugh. It was four months ago during a FaceTime call. I told her how good she looked after her haircut, and she smiled and gave me a little laugh, he said, grinning at the memory. And that's where we have to leave it. I thank you for tuning into SoundBody today. Please stay well and come back next week for more healthy living ideas.